I think the way forward here is to connect these private sector payments to innovation. Innovation has been very, very good to Microsoft founder Bill Gates and will certainly need more innovation to meet the climate challenge. But innovation isn't the answer to everything. Sometimes you just have to buckle down and do what works, especially where natural climate solutions are involved. Either way, positive change doesn't always come cheaply. I see these voluntary carbon markets and the acceleration of innovation through the marketplace as really coming together and giving us that chance of getting to zero. Zero is net zero greenhouse gas emissions, the point where all human activities are absorbing as much greenhouse gas as they're emitting, and it's decades away. Net zero, as the technical term is evolving now, is different from carbon neutral. Basically, net zero means you've already eliminated all of the emissions that you can, and now you're offsetting the rest using carbon credits from projects that suck greenhouse gas out of the atmosphere. Carbon neutral, on the other hand, means you're using carbon credits to offset your emissions now, today, often before you've actually eliminated emissions. And you can be carbon neutral by financing projects that reduce emissions somewhere else. Because right now, we have to move urgently. And the idea is to put money into activities that can reduce emissions fast, and then later put money into activities that remove greenhouse gases. If this is confusing, don't worry. I'll have a whole show on reductions versus removals coming up soon. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC, tells us that we have to be halfway to net zero globally by 2030 and all the way there by 2050 to prevent catastrophic climate change. That's not me talking, but rather the scientific consensus based on a review of all peer-reviewed papers on the matter, as I explained in episode 48. The question is, how do we get there? And what is the role of carbon markets, voluntary or otherwise? A voluntary carbon offset market does four things. This is Mark Carney, former governor of both the Bank of England and the Bank of Canada, speaking in late January. The first, it's complementary. Hear that? Complementary. Underscore that. Complementary to companies' efforts to reduce absolute emissions. By complementary, he means that carbon markets are one tool for reducing emissions faster and deeper than what a company can do on its own. Carbon markets make it possible for a company to reduce its carbon footprint by paying for someone else's renewable energy that reduces emissions or new technologies that suck gases from the atmosphere, as I first covered in episode 31 back in early 2018. And I'll cover more going forward. Or a technology that exists now, reforestation and sustainable forest management, both of which I cover in almost every episode of Bionic Planet and which are more complex than just planting trees and walking away. Carbon markets are many things, but they are not a substitute for eliminating your own emissions, at least not in the long term. Companies' responsibility, first and foremost, is to reduce their absolute emissions. Absolute emissions are the greenhouse gases that a company emits across its entire supply chain by flying its planes, burning its coal, or chopping forests. 
we're seeing tremendous progress on reducing absolute emissions by switching to renewable energy, natural fibers, or climate-smart agriculture, among other activities that I cover here. And carbon markets should help accelerate this. But how do we know that these markets, A, work, or B, are being deployed properly? That's where Mark Carney comes in. He and another bill, Bill Winters of Standard Chartered Bank, created a global task force last year, the Task Force on Scaling Voluntary Carbon Markets, to come up with a consensus on what constitutes net zero emissions and what role carbon markets can play in getting us there. Now, this is not the first initiative to do this. I've covered the Science-Based Targets Initiative on this show, and I'll be covering them in more detail going forward. And I'll also be increasing my coverage of other initiatives that launched two years ago and are taking shape now. But the Kearney Task Force, the Task Force on Scaling Voluntary Carbon Markets, is one of the newest, and it has the highest profile. As the name implies, the new task force started out with the premise that voluntary carbon markets have to scale up to meet the climate challenge. Specifically, Carney and his team say the market has to increase at least 15-fold and possibly many times that without sacrificing quality. And they put out a call to more than 150 other market participants and observers, including myself, so it's a pretty diverse group. If I'm in there, you know, you know they went, they went beyond the usual suspects. Inviting us into a four-month consultation process that wrapped up in January with a 138-page blueprint for ratcheting up voluntary carbon markets. The blueprint offers 20 specific actions divided among six topics, ranging from the creation of what they're calling core carbon principles or CCPs which will be used to recognize verified offsets and to create a core price of an emission reduction. Now, the idea of a core carbon price is kind of controversial for reasons that I'll touch on today, but we'll we'll go into in more depth later. But people don't really argue with the bulk of what the task force is trying to do. What some people have an issue with is that they say it's duplicating efforts like the ones I've been telling you about since 2016, rather than creating anything new. Some participants, including some well-known ones, have been questioning the expertise of Carney and his colleagues. Why are they expert exactly? Mm-hmm. Based on what? Nothing. Based on money, power, position, that's what they're based on. That's Wayne Sharp, who launched something called the Carbon Trade Exchange a decade ago. He's certainly got some credibility in the climate space, and he's one of the people we'll be hearing from in the weeks ahead. Carney, meanwhile, got himself into some hot water two weeks ago after he told Bloomberg News that the $600 billion portfolio of his current employer, Brookfield Asset Management, is already at net zero. We are net zero today. The sound quality is pretty horrible, but he said, quote, we are at net zero today, the we being Brookfield. He continues. Brookfield is net zero, and that's not net zero just in our operations, you know, the buildings we have and the if, if we ever take flights again, you know, when we take flights again and uh, the hotels and things like that and the, and the paper, et cetera, um, but across the 575 billion asset portfolio. And the reason we're net zero is we have this enormous uh, renewables business that we've built up um, and all the avoided emissions that come with that. 
when I first heard about this, I thought he'd been misquoted. I thought Bloomberg had blown it. But he, he wasn't misquoted. He says he misspoke, and he did issue a statement saying that he understands that you can't claim to have reached net zero just because you've invested in renewable energy. And then reiterating his belief that Brookfield's portfolio is on track to being net zero by 2050. And that is the way these companies are looking at these long-term pledges, where they say we have a goal that we want to achieve, we have a map for getting there, and now we're at point A, B, and C on the map, so we're, we're on our journey. And again, I will come back to cover this because it's something we saw in the zero deforestation movement. There are lots of lessons that we've learned for keeping this thing honest. Having heard Carney speak before, including for this podcast, which you've already heard, and having interviewed him a few times in the past, I'm giving him the benefit of the doubt on this and using his flub to remind us all that this stuff is complicated. On that subject, here's Augustine Silvani, who heads Conservation International's Conservation Finance Division. We'll do a quick Google search and you'll find 17 contradicting sort of statements on, on the market. It's certainly a, a tricky sort of uh, subject. And one thing that annoys me a little bit is, is when people look at these subjects as if they're static. They're not static. They're fluid and evolving. And today we begin a multi-part series on efforts to channel that evolution without stifling it. Man may be unwittingly changing the world's climate through the waste products of his civilization. There's a group of us now who are proposing that the Earth has actually entered a new epoch, and that is the Anthropocene. We know that the enemy is carbon, and we know it's ugly face. We should put a big fat price on it, and of course, add to that, drop the subsidies. Earth, we broke it, we own it. And nothing is as it was. Not the trees, not the seas, not the forests, farms, or fields. And not the global economy that depends on all of these. But we can restore it, make it better, greener, more resilient, more sustainable. But how? Technology? Geoengineering? Are we doomed to live on a bionic planet? Or is nature herself the answer? That's the question we address in every episode of Bionic Planet, a podcast of the Anthropocene, the new epoch defined by man's impact on Earth. And today we begin a multi-part series on efforts to curtail that impact by getting everyone to agree on a few things no one agrees on right now, namely, what is net zero and how do we get there? In today's installment, I'm offering you a quick introduction to the task force on scaling voluntary carbon markets using audio from the launch event, followed by an interview I did with Augustine Silvani the night before the blueprint was released. This is the first of at least a dozen or so episodes on the race to net zero that I plan to deliver in the coming months. And I've taken some huge steps to get them to you. Chief among them being... I quit my day job of 15 years as editor of Ecosystem Marketplace to get back into pure reporting as the new net zero correspondent of Carbon Pulse. There, I'll be focusing on the broader transition to a net zero economy, which should put me in the kind of reporting mindset that's conducive to producing more of these shows. I loved Ecosystem Marketplace and the people who work there, but I left mainstream media 15 years ago with two objectives, 
to first understand climate change and natural climate solutions at a deep level, and two, to share that understanding with as wide an audience as possible. And Bionic Planet offers the best way for me to share what I've learned without being beholden to anyone but my listeners. And Carbon Pulse offers me a vehicle for deepening and broadening the understanding I already have. If you think I'm doing a good job of translating these complex issues into plain English and putting them into context for you, and you want to hear more, then help me give it to you by becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash bionic planet. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash bionic planet. There you can support me for as little as $1 per episode and with a monthly cap. This way, if I don't manage to generate an episode in a month, you don't get charged. And if I manage to crank out a ton of episodes, you don't get whacked either. If you are curious about Carbon Pulse and want a trial subscription, then go get one and use the registration code BIONICPLANET. That way, if you become a subscriber, I get a cut and that helps the show. Or just send me an email at steve at carbon-pulse.com or steve at bionic-planet.com. The web address for becoming a patron again is patreon.com forward slash bionicplanet. You can also help others find the show by giving me a five-star review on whichever podcatcher you access me through. Remember, the more stars I get, the more ears I get. And the more ears I get, the more minds I can reach. And we have to reach hundreds of millions of minds if we're to meet the climate challenge. We can do it if we all work together. If you've ever read through one of Ecosystem Marketplace's annual State of Voluntary Carbon Markets reports, you know that most voluntary carbon transactions, and almost all of those based on the kinds of natural climate solutions that I talk about on this show, take place over-the-counter as opposed to on an exchange. And with good reason. Each project is unique, just as houses are unique. The voluntary carbon market is more like the real estate market than it's like the corn market or the bond market. This can be bad for the people and entities who are buying the the offsets and for those who are producing them because it means there's no price transparency. Now, Forest Trends created the annual State of Voluntary Carbon Markets reports back in 2006 to provide this transparency. And the Task Force on Scaling Voluntary Carbon Markets aims to move that whole process forward by creating a globally recognized core carbon price that represents the price of either a one-ton reduction in emissions or a ton of carbon extracted from the atmosphere. I'm not sure such a price can be created, but several efforts are underway to create one, including one by Ecosystem Marketplace, and I'll look at the proposed mechanisms for doing so in a future installment. For now, let's pick up where Mark Carney left off at the start of the show. He said there were four things that a voluntary carbon market must do, although I can't say agree with all of them. The first I do agree with, and it's to complement rather than replace efforts to reduce absolute emissions. But it goes beyond that. They need to first reduce, then report, including net zero plans, and then, only then, look to offset. In other words, to become net zero and to be recognized as on the path to being net zero, 
as opposed to carbon neutral, a company has to create a plan for reducing absolute emissions through fuel switching or sustainable farming or other direct measures, and then it has to implement this plan and submit to audits on its progress over time. Annette Nazareth made a similar point. She is a former commissioner of the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission who also served on the task force. Companies should publicly disclose commitments, detailed transition plans, and annual progress against these plans to decarbonize operations and value chains. Industry consortia, similar to Corsia for other heavy industry sectors, can also move the needle significantly. And clear and aligned narrative on offsets and what claims corporates can make will also help drive demand. A cornerstone of carbon finance, and one we've talked about on this show a lot, is additionality, which means an offset has to finance something that isn't commercially viable in the current economy. And this viability changes over time. Once upon a time, you could offset your emissions by financing wind farms in China. You can no longer do that. You can no longer offset your emissions by financing renewable energy projects unless those projects are in very poor countries or conflict zones. The reason? Wind farms are now a commercially viable energy source. They pay for themselves, which something like green hydrogen doesn't. And this brings us to the second thing that Carney believes credits must do. The second thing that this does is it is catalytic. It's catalytic not for renewable projects in many advanced economies where the economics are absolutely clear, they're, they are profitable and they will be driven, but they're catalytic for projects that many of which are in emerging and developing economies where the economics are not yet quite there. And this can help tip the balance for those projects to come in. They also, this, these offsets can also be catalytic as part of helping the economics of absolutely essential breakthrough technologies that need to happen for us to ultimately get to net zero. A lot of offsets, they're just financing activities that aren't viable and maybe never would be without the, the carbon payment. Now, tech bros love to catalyze new technology. So they talk about this all the time. Bill Gates is tech bro royalty, and he emphasizes this function quite a lot. If you just have some wealthy companies that aren't in the industrial sectors where the green extra green cost would make their products non-competitive, if they're just dealing with their portion, it's a very small percentage. On the other hand, if you're taking this offset money and you're bootstrapping the markets for the difficult products like green cement, green steel, green aviation fuel, then you can start the learning curve. And as you get that volume and learning curve, then these premiums can come down. Because after all, to be at zero by 2050, all the products that middle-income countries buy for shelter and lighting and transport you know, are going to have to come at such a small premium that they're willing to shift all their purchasing. And so taking uh, the lesson from solar energy where uh, country policies drove up those volumes and the prices came down and now shifting that to the hard areas, including industrial and things like uh, green hydrogen, if we can take this money and start those learning curves, and so we're driving up the volume and, and causing success and more innovation to get those premiums down, then I see these voluntary carbon markets and the acceleration of innovation through the marketplace as really com coming together 
and giving us that chance of getting to zero. This is certainly a valid argument, but the term isn't always applicable that way in natural climate solutions. Yeah, they're always coming up with improvements in agriculture and forestry, but nature-based carbon credits often work by helping indigenous people get title to their land or helping subsistence farmers implement known best practices. There's a whole other debate just below the surface of this one, and we'll pick that up in a later show. Here's Bill Winters again. Reduction has to be first and foremost. But we also know that it'd be very difficult for many businesses to get all the way to net zero, much less carbon negative, as Microsoft has committed, without tapping into the offset market. Offsets are the, the most convenient and efficient way to migrate the tens of billions of dollars that need to move from the hands of people like my bank, Center Charter Bank, into the hands of the people that can actually remove carbon from the environment uh, or structurally reduce carbon in the environment in the most efficient way. Uh, in addition, we have the, the tremendous benefit of creating uh, price transparency, which has all sorts of other benefits, not least in terms of making clear to those of us that are polluting in any way what the cost of that pollution is. This issue of price transparency is, in my opinion, underappreciated by people in the NGO world. We'll come back to it later, but the gist is that opaque markets are really only good for people with inside information or for middlemen. Back to Mark Carney. The third thing is uh, this market is cross-border. This market is being driven. It's a voluntary market, but it's being driven by companies making these net zero commitments. Most of those companies, the vast majority of those companies are in the G7 advanced economy, so-called advanced economies. They will be looking for high quality, high integrity offsets. And most of those offsets will come from emerging and developing economies. So this is a potentially huge cross-border flow. This is another interesting one, but we should also point out that not all countries see it that way. Brazil and Indonesia, for example, plan to use nature-based carbon credits as a way of getting domestic industry to finance forest conservation and sustainable agriculture. The Netherlands is embracing a similar approach, as we saw in Episode 30, A Green New Deal for the Netherlands. And then the last thing is that this uh, market has the potential, again, properly structured, to have enormous co-benefits, co-benefits for biodiversity, co-benefits for other SDGs although rooted in a high-integrity, highly credible, open, transparent carbon offset market. Another controversial part of the blueprint is the call to create a sort of super regulator to coordinate existing standard-setting bodies in the task force. We have to get a governance body in place to oversee the CCPs. This should include embedding transparency, standard-setting and oversight of verification of emissions reductions from projects. It will also include ensuring projects boost biodiversity and carbon capture while respecting community and land rights. And beyond overseeing credit level integrity, a governance body should oversee participant level and process level integrity as well. Nothing will happen unless demand is in place. But having said that, organizations need guidance and clear standards on when offsetting is legitimate. We need to see transparent climate commitments from firms that include how much offsetting they plan to do in the coming years. This is controversial because I'd argue, and I do in fact argue in the interview I do with Augustine and in the interview we'll see later with Wayne Sharp, that demand is only low because climate awareness has been low. There's an undercurrent in some of the comments 
that some of these task force members are making that implies the markets are failing, but they're not. They're meeting demand, and demand has only recently begun to pick up. The, the fact that net zero is even a term, not just a term, but used by 1,500 corporations already, and I guess after this week, it will be many more if we refer back to uh, letters that are coming from the owners of any of these businesses. Roughly a quarter of all participants chose not to endorse the blueprint, in part because of the feeling that they're reinventing the wheel, which is what Annette Nazareth at times seems to be advocating. We need to get one level deeper on the CCPs, which includes designing specific guardrails per project. For example, renewables only in least developed countries. And to review historic credits to ensure that they would meet the high quality criteria of the CCPs. On the governance process, we have to get more specific on the roles and responsibilities and help propose a way forward for its establishment. And on reference contracts, the task force can help develop the contract templates that will be used by market participants to trade. Bill Winters also made the point that we need to get more people from developing countries involved in the process. There's, a, there's an overweight in the task force and the consultation group in the developed markets. So we have a good representation from Indonesia, from, from China, from, from Latin America, but not enough. And when we look at the, the carbon equation in the world, something like 90% of the practical nature-based solutions, the, the, the target areas, are sitting in developing markets. Whereas on the flip side, something like 90% of the natural offset buyers, at least so far, are coming in developed markets. So we wanted to make sure that, that we balance that out so that we really have the, both sides of the market represented in the efforts as we get into to finalizing the, uh, the implementation plans to take this framework and put it into reality. And picking up again that issue of transparency, he emphasized the role that transparent markets play in driving regulation. Think about the number of people that are watching this time who weren't watching before. Our owners are watching. Our regulators, if you're in regulated industries, are watching. As Mark says, to the extent that some of these commitments make it into financial reporting, you've got auditors who are watching, and you've got NGOs who are watching. And if you have, a, if you have an orchestrated market, these credits eventually are being delivered into an exchange, and somebody's on the other side of every one of those trades, and they're watching very carefully. Uh, and like every other market that we've seen that's managed to get to critical mass, the best way to make sure that people don't cheat is to have lots of eyes on the process from end to end with complete transparency. So at the very heart of our recommendations is finding ways to make that transparency very evident at every stage of the process. So I think if we get that, the, the confidence that these credits are legitimate, not just now, but through the life of the projects, will soar. I'll be back in a moment with Augustine Silvani, but first, 2021 is shaping up as a pivotal year for climate policy. And if you find it all overwhelming, you're not alone. If you think I'm doing a good job of translating these issues into plain English, and putting them into context, and you want to hear more, then help me give it to you by becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash bionic planet. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash bionic planet. There you can support me for as little as $1 per episode and with a monthly cap. This way, if I don't manage to generate an episode in a month, you don't get charged. And if I manage to crank out a ton of episodes, you don't get whacked either. The address again is patreon.com forward slash bionic planet. 
If you are curious about Carbon Pulse and want a trial subscription, then go get one and use the registration code BIONICPLANET. That way, if you become a subscriber, I get a cut and that helps the show. Or send me an email at steve at carbon-pulse.com. That's steve at carbon-pulse.com. Or via Bionic Planet, which is almost the same, steve at bionic-planet.com, steve at bionic-planet.com. And I can set you up with a trial subscription. If you become a paid subscriber, I get part of that as well, which of course will help this podcast grow. Finally, you can help others find the show by giving me a five-star review on whichever podcatcher you access me through. Remember, the more stars I get, the more ears I get. And the more ears I get, the more minds I can reach. And we have to reach hundreds of millions of minds if we're to meet the climate challenge. We can do it if we all work together. My main guest today is Augustine Silvani, who heads Conservation International's Conservation Finance Division. Like me, he started out in finance and then segued into the climate space. We also both participated in the task force consultation group, and we started out by talking about why he seems so optimistic this year compared to years past. It's you know, a couple of things. One is the science is much more clear now in the sense that if we don't get on track by 2030, we miss our chance, right? So before climate change was this sort of faraway thing, now there's a sell-by date and an expiration date on all these things that motivates people to act now in ways that before they haven't. So that's one sort of motivating fact. And the other is the pressure. You know, civil society, the Greta's of the world, it's become front and center. And polluting is becoming no longer acceptable and emissions are something to be dealt with and and dealt with urgently. So those two things have reawakened voluntary markets, offsets, and the role of nature within those. And every scientific study that comes out further proves that nature can be 30% or more of the solution to climate. It's embedded in all the IPCC models, you know, the UN models that looks at climate change. So we know that without nature, we don't have a chance of, of meeting the Paris goals. The question is, how do we fully activate that solution? And I think that's really where natural climate solutions, the whole carbon markets are, are coming to bear right now. I guess there's a couple of things that that struck me over the, over the course of these discussions. One is there seems to be a a perception among many that carbon markets in their current form aren't working. I, I don't really see it that way. I see it more as a demand issue. I mean, neither of us would say these markets are perfect, and that's why these markets are always evolving. But the reason they haven't reached their potential is because demand was low and prices were low because demand was low, and demand was low because climate awareness was low. And quite frankly, there had been some seriously flawed reporting from credible news organizations, ProPublica, most recently, Atlantic Harper, some really good publications have gotten some basic concepts very wrong, and they miseducated the public. But when climate awareness picked up in 2017, so did demand for voluntary carbon credits. And we documented that in the State of Voluntary Carbon Markets reports. In the 2020 report, we asked developers about what sorts of emission reductions they can generate at different price points, and this goes to the issue of scaling, because 
there's a lot that existing markets can deliver in their current state if demand materializes. So markets are working in that they're responding to demand by funneling money to reduction projects that can expand dramatically as prices rise, but it's demand that hasn't been there. Back in 2018, when we did our state of voluntary carbon market support, there was a lot of optimism in the market, but there was also a fear that the media emphasis on natural climate solutions would spark demand for shoddy tree planting programs or soil carbon programs with no real methodologies behind them, but lots of slick marketing. And I think that fear has proven justified. We're seeing a lot of these guys out there talking about you can offset your emissions by planting a tree, and it's just not that simple. But the calls focused on existing standards and on the quote-unquote creation of new principles that were really old principles that the standards already followed, which, again, is great. But the framing should be about scaling up without losing quality But it felt like the markets being dysfunctional and these smart finance guys coming in to fix them instead of the need to continue the evolutionary approach of scaling what works and abandoning what doesn't. Having said that, I was really impressed with the way they synthesized so many different views from so many different actors in the end. And it looks like we're seeing agreement on core carbon principles that everyone agrees on. And that do reflect current standards, also more independence for verifiers, which again, everyone has been talking about for years, and that couldn't be achieved because the resources weren't there. And with these new working groups, we're going to have people coordinating together, and they do seem to be intent on being inclusive and getting more people in. I'm excited, but there's this little skeptical voice in my head that always goes off when big money comes into anything. You know, phase two is when the saw hits the tree. <laughs> yeah, I think that was certainly part of our feedback is to make sure that they are not reinventing the wheel. There's been a lot of work, uh, a lot of effort over the last two decades, really, on, on carbon markets, the science, the methodologies, the verification standards, everything around that. And those of us that have been in the market for a long time, it's sort of a deja vu where Questions are being asked, really, that were resolved a long time ago. Right. People with lots of on-the-ground experience and no resources have spent 30 years lining up these dominoes for this moment. And now that the resources are here, instead of tipping the dominoes, the -the on-the-ground people could be overlooked because they were on the ground instead of in the room. Yeah, to some degree, we've never tried it at scale. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and instead of saying that means the framework is incorrect or the science is incorrect, it knows that the, the signals before then were just not there. Um, I remember hearing some of the, the the criticisms around carbon markets, especially nature-based ones, maybe five, six years ago, that um, it didn't work. When in reality, we just haven't tried it at, at the scale that we need to. And I think that's the position we're in now. We're finally getting the demand signals And you're finally starting to see the investment flowing to these things that to some degree have been piloting for the last decade or so. And now they're ready for kind of prime time. And that's where the task force, I think, can come in, take the the best of what's out there, standardize it, codify it, and just reach a, a general consensus. So we need enough people from various sectors and various parts of, of the economy and the world and society 
to come together and agree and say, yes, we think this is the minimum criteria for equality. This is what a good project looks like and a good market looks like. And then we're off and running because the clock is ticking. So we don't have a choice here. In phase two, we're going to be fleshing out these six topics. There's the creation of the core carbon principles, the creation of a reference contract, market infrastructure, uh, boosting demand signals, which is critical. And then there's also this meta-regulator for the existing standards. I forget all six of them, but that's the gist. Um, It's a big ask, and I'm wondering if I could just get your overall impression on the process to date and where we go from here. You know, it's been my experience with the task force that they've been very open to Mm -hmm. the feedback. So I'm I'm very happy to see them taking that on. I think what they originally were going for was a new sort of body or standard that all standards live under. There's some interesting questions, right? Just from a market design perspective, what does it mean to regulate a voluntary market? So nobody is forcing anybody to do anything. How can you get people to self-regulate? And what they're trying to do is to say, since it is voluntary, let's have enough folks to agree on, on, on quality and let's have a new body, a new sort of entity regulate that to some degree and, and regulate is a very loose term in, in this way, but at least set, set that sort of bar. And then markets will do what they do. So if if you're able to differentiate now, if you're a consumer in this market, a sort of buyer of carbon, if you're able to differentiate high quality versus low quality, I have a hard time believing that there's going to be very much demand for low quality. So I think it is very much let's set the bar and let's have the demand migrate towards that high bar instead of taking a, a regulatory approach, which will be to say, you must do this, you're an entity that wants to offset, this is the pathway uh, to take. It's, it's setting the guardrails. And I think the recession is going to be positive because that, that's what the market is facing right now is just uh, to some degree confusion. There's a lot of standards. There's a lot of talk. Just Google, do a quick Google search and you'll find 17 contradicting sort of statements on, on the market. So this is trying to cut across all of that and, and to say the vast majority of, of people, at least a, a good amount of them, have agreed on these principles and let's go forward. And, and again, the principles are around sort of things that we can all agree upon. What is the right level of transparency? What's the right level of, of governance for this sort of decentralized global market? What does quality look like? They call it core carbon principles, CCPs. So, you know, very normal and traditional things that you would like to see in any market. This brings it all together. I have high hopes for it, obviously. And we're going to you know, see what comes out at the other end. Mm-hmm. Do you have anything you'd like to see them prioritize? What's more important to me is agreeing around confidence intervals or what does it mean to be conservative? When you're developing a project, you can make a, a, a variety of assumptions and and you have some latitude uh, to be able to do that. So I think that needs to be tightened up and the same assumptions and the same sort of level of conservativeness should be applied across standards and across methodologies, whereas right now it, it's a little bit disparate and each body has its own. It doesn't mean that one is right or one is wrong. It just means that there's no consensus and, and that's something we should be building towards. And no comparability. Yeah. Yeah, and that's interesting, and that's something we should probably unpack a little bit. We talk about confidence intervals, and if you're looking at something like Red Plus, you have to use modeling that I think, generally speaking, they talk about a 95% confidence interval saying that we need to show that we're 95% certain that 
this is what's happening. And that's an IPCC principle, though, right? That 95% confidence interval comes from the IPCC. What would then be additional in, into standards where there might be some variability across different standards that, that could be improved on here? The basic math comes from the IPCC, and you'll see every standard map to, to, to that and to some degree to the CDM and the methodologies that were created under the CDM. So I, I think the basic math is there, but it's when it comes to things like uh, quantifying leakage, quantifying which carbon pools to include or not, emission sources, everybody has a little bit of a different take on it. And California might be more rigorous or you know tighter than some other ones. You could say, well, it's a compliance market. They should be. And you may have to take bigger haircuts using one standard or, or another. Um, so it, it is a little bit case by case. I do think there are almost too many methodologies right now. If you think about how methodologies were created, it was really up to the developers to, to create their own recipe. And in theory, others could use it. In reality, the general applicability of these methodologies is, is sometimes limited. What I would like to see, especially in Red Plus, is less methodologies, more agreement on a core set of ones. If, if these mm. are your circumstances, this is how you apply the, the rules and sampling and confidence intervals and all of that. Not only from a sort of credibility point of view, but to make it easier for project developers. If, mm -hmm. if you have to have a bespoke methodology or hire a consultant that is, is only specialized in one specific methodology, it becomes very expensive. And if you're, we're trying to scale this stuff, I would rather take bigger haircuts and have standardized approaches rather than have more precision down to the, each carbon atom, but it really not be scalable or not be usable. It's very interesting as we get into this constant debate about how precise should we be and how much leeway should we have? And the, an interesting conversation I had with a project developer who came into the red space from the timber industry. What, what drew him into it was seeing all the, the wood that went to waste. It just gnawed him. And he, he wanted to get into the conservation space. And it's the same methodologies. Like the way you estimate the amount of timber in a forest is so similar to the way you estimate the amount of carbon in a forest. But yeah. the difference is the confidence intervals because – in, in this space, the confidence intervals are a lot higher in the nature space in the, or in the conservation space, whereas he said the timber industry would use confidence intervals of 80%, but they just did it at such scale that it balanced out. They knew that, okay, we're going to overcompensate here. We're going to pay for this forested area. We're going to invest in this timberland, and then we're going to find out that we get a lot less than we thought, but we know that over time – we're going to have others where we get a lot more than we thought, and it balances out. And I've talked to people who work in other conservation areas where there's a performance-based metric, and that seems to be the approach they take, is that rather than focusing on extreme precision, just identify a, a, a confidence interval that can be achieved, and then just make the buffers higher. So you know, if, if you're compensating for wetland impacts, for example, if you have a confidence interval of 80% and then you throw in a buffer that's 20%, triple that. So you know that even if you're off by what could be the worst case, you're still overcompensating. That's exactly right. And, uh, and it's interesting. And I'm not a climate scientist. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm not a biologist. I come from the investment world. And, and now I consider myself to be a conservationist, at least, but a conservation investor. 
And it's that investment mindset that investors are so comfortable with the sort of what is good enough. What are we comfortable enough with to be able to make decisions? The climate has, has come at it from the complete opposite side. It's we are seeking perfection. And if it's not perfect, then it must not be good or mm-hmm. at least not good enough. And I think we really need to search for the good enough uh, and we need to find some shortcuts that doesn't jeopardize the integrity of the outcomes. So I really like those performance methods. You've seen some countries apply them and it's a way of sort of achieving scale. And I think there have been some interesting things that that are happening in, in that space. So if you look at sort of blue carbon mm-hmm. and obviously additionality is a big issue in, in this whole space. But blue carbon, I think, is a special one, and especially these mangrove ecosystems. There, there's so uh, few hectares left of mangroves. There's so little of the ecosystem left, and it's under such threat that it's almost a, a blanket authority that additionality is guaranteed. Right? Because mm-hmm. if you're working in mangroves and working to conserve mangroves, it must be because it's additional because you want to. Because there's no other reason to do it, or clearly the forces against you are so extreme that you don't have to go out of your way and kill yourself proving that sort of additionality. I think it's that thinking to identify obvious scenarios where the climate outcome is positive and you take enough of a conservative approach that you're confident in in the ultimate outcome. But instead of seeking that ultimate precision, because we're not going to get there. And honestly, I'm more concerned in the direction of travel than in, in, in the act, in the precise sort of number. And I think we need to search for more of those easier to apply uh, sort of solutions. Yeah. Don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good and all that. We keep saying that, but it's, we keep searching for the perfect. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I find myself falling into it because you don't want to have people cheating and you, you can easily get lost in these numbers. What is it that you came in with from the investment side that you bring to conservation and what is it you think people who are still in the investment side can learn from conservation because this is one of those things that that came up a lot in the consultation calls was these different worlds with speaking from different theoretical frameworks and a lot of them had big gaps in what they were saying yeah i think it's been really interesting and um sort of originally why i got involved in in this space was uh, through carbon but specifically for around forests and uh, nature-based sort of carbon. And this, I'm talking almost 20 years ago, when it was still very nascent. So uh, in the past, I've worked in commodities, sort of trading desks, uh, eventually doing project finance and working for a number of different entities. But I've always been obviously, you know, interested in conservation, a little bit of nature. and, And you keep seeing all of these reports come out saying, we need X amount of billion, right? And this is the funding gap. And usually they're gigantic numbers. And you think, what's going on here? And when I came originally, it was to figure out how do we drive more capital? And when you take a big picture look of the world, more capital means essentially is private capital because that, mm-hmm. that's where the capital pools are. And sure, public finance and philanthropy have a big role to play, but they're not going to solve all of our problems mm-hmm. like we've seen in, in other sectors. But what investors are very good at is very quickly getting to be able to identify sort of opportunities and using mental shortcuts, using quick ways of identifying good investments from bad. And very quickly, when you get into the space, you realize that most of the issues surrounding sort of conservation finance, and I'm talking beyond carbon, just moving money to do sustainable agriculture or to conserve areas around the world, 
most of it is just normal emerging markets, frontier markets issues. It has nothing to do with the, the category of, of nature as being investable or not. So once you strip that aside and you get to the actual sort of business model around nature, then you need to make nature pay. And it's as simple as that. It's mm-hmm. sort of what are the mechanisms that, that can pay for these outcomes? And that's why carbon obviously is so interesting, so important. It's the first time right now at scale that you can get paid for for leaving a tree standing rather than cutting it. Mm-hmm. That's a complete sort of mind shift. But we haven't caught up as quickly in, in our evaluation of sort of what is conservation with that mindset. And it's if it's one thing I've learned too, it's it's a lot easier to turn bankers into conservationists than, than the other way around, I think. <laughs> it's where scientists are, are obviously the, the gatekeepers here. But it's very much a world of, of absolutes, and it, it, it's either perfect or, or it's not, which is very different from the, the investment side. Yeah, and they love to argue over the minutiae. It's something, it's uh, stimulating. Can you imagine? So a, a normal you know, VC fund, they would right. make whatever, 100 investments in technology companies. 90 of them would fail, 10 would be a, a success and a roaring success. Can you imagine that in conservation? If I were to tell you I'm going to invest in 90 projects or 100 projects and 90 of them are going to fail, I would, you know, get crucified. So yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's a totally different way of, of looking at the world and looking at success. And I'm not saying one is better than the other. Right. I just think there needs to be a, a little bit of more collaboration between the two. Yeah, yeah. And one area where the environmental guys are skeptical is the creation, not of the core principles, the CCPs. I think they're behind that, but there's a lot of skepticism on the idea of creating reference contracts. And I'm even curious as to how we're going to go about doing this. How are we going to disentangle the price of reducing emissions from all the other attributes, especially when you're talking about land-based projects, which are so complicated? Yeah, I think it's it's a good question because from a a practitioner's sort of conservation organization's point of view, it's hard to think how that would work, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, The the cost to protect or restore an acre of land in in Brazil or in South Africa or Australia or the U.S. is is very different. And it's all dependent on specific circumstances. And not only are they different, they're also incredibly unique, and that's why we're we're so attached to them. So uh, it, it's almost each project it's, it's it's its own thing, and it's all very special. And I fully agree with that. But at the same time, if you say we're going to scale the market, then somehow you need some sort of index or or benchmark to to grab onto. The question for me is, is is that price going to be sort of the clearing price, you know, in a way? And is it going to be high enough? And are the incentives to to keep ratcheting it up? Are they in place to be able to make sure that more and more projects come, come online rather than just going after the, the cheapest, the, the lowest hanging fruit, the ones that may not have the most co-benefits as we would like to see? So I'm not anti a core carbon price if it's a reflection of where the market is. But I also think there needs to be the mechanism to steadily increase prices so that new opportunities come online. Otherwise, we're, we're going to be stuck with just the, the bottom and not the whole suite of opportunities there. Yeah. Of course, then we could also get the low-hanging fruit and then there's no choice but to work out, work your way up too. That's, yeah. <laughs> have you read um, Jonah Bush's work on what happens at different price points? Yeah, Jonah's great. Yeah. He used to be a colleague of mine at CI. Okay. Um, 
He's done very good studies. Yeah, I'm going to have him on the show because he, he had a really interesting analysis on what happens at various price points. And since if the, the social cost of carbon is $100 a ton, and if you've got a market price of 50, you're getting a bargain at that level. So it's very interesting to see what can happen at these various price points. And I guess that that is this kind of goes to this question of can we, if we get, if we increase demand, prices should just go up anyway, and you'll have no choice but to go to higher quality. If you're thinking just, you know, standard economics and how markets work, that that's that would be how, how things would play out. I would be in favor of figuring out a way of putting that in. Like a lot of the regulated markets, they have escalating prices. So that there's an incentive, you know, not only to act now, but to be able to find ways of, of reducing emissions more quickly, more efficiently, and at lower cost. Because a year from now, two years from now, three years from now, the price of inaction, besides the climate angle, is just going to cost you a hell of a lot more money. And if you were, if you can imagine a world with a carbon price of 100, the things we could do with that price, uh, that the opportunities that will be available just to restore all these degraded pastures in, in Brazil and a number of other places like it, be able to hold on to these old growth sort of forests. It's really pretty uh, stunning. And I don't know if there's a generally accepted sort of a MAC curve, the, the marginal abatement curves for, for nature-based offsets, but I would love to see that because newer and more interesting sort of solutions come on as, as the price increases and, and the co-benefits just go through the roof. One thing we've seen over the past few years, and it's been a theme in our state of voluntary carbon market supports at Ecosystem Marketplace, is the convergence of voluntary and compliance markets as more and more cap-and-trade programs recognize offsets developed under methodologies associated with voluntary markets. Now, I mean, the task force is for scaling voluntary markets, but they also consider Corsia to be in this universe. And to me, Corsia isn't really voluntary. It's not cap-and-trade, okay? I mean, so that's true, but it's but an airline can't opt out, so it's not really a voluntary market. And I, I, I keep wondering if the framing on this is 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 less about voluntary markets per se and just more about broader agreement on what constitutes an office what constitutes an offset whether it's compliance or voluntary it's certainly a, a tricky sort of uh, subject and one thing that annoys me a little bit is is when people look at these subjects as if they're static right mm-hmm. so Additionality, voluntary markets, it depends when you look at it in a moment in time. Mm-hmm. So a, a renewable energy project might have been additional 15 years ago, and the same exact project is not going to be additional today or may not be because prices have gone up and technology costs have gone down. Mm-hmm. So uh, you can't take such a simplistic view to say these will always be additional, these not. And same for voluntary markets, I think. Right now, they have a very clear role to play. I think we all hope for a future where there are no voluntary markets in the sense that there's a global carbon price and emissions have a cost associated with them. I think there'll always be space for trying new things, doing innovative things, trying new methodologies and all that. When you get into trouble is is the claims that you make against these. And if we get to a space where... We're still having that innovation, which I think is going to be very important, and we'll see how the task force deals with that space. But you won't be able to make any claims against those innovative new methodologies or or tools or things. It's going to be difficult to attract investment to it. So we almost need to give 
people the, the space to fail where it's okay, but also you have to restrict what, what claims can be made. So that's why I think carbon neutral claims in general are very tricky and are very risky because it, there's a, an absolutism there and a math uh, problem built in that uh, can get you into trouble. So if all you're trying to say is we're deploying capital to, to try and you know reduce emissions in an innovative way, and we'll measure it and we'll see what, what happens. I think most people will be okay with that. If you come out and say, we are carbon neutral by investing in this project and it's been unproven, the methodology is unproven, there's no standard associated with it, then nothing rightfully so you're gonna get into trouble. And it'll be interesting to see the evolution of the voluntary markets. I agree with you, Corsi is voluntary in the sense that the Paris Agreement is voluntary, but they're very different uh, markets to what we're talking about now. Now it's really unregulated entities they're obviously feeling pressure. They're not doing this solely because they have extra money or something or they want to be good. There's a reason why they're doing it, but nobody's compelling them to. So don't put up big walls in order for them to invest in, in, in this space, essentially. Yeah, that's always the conundrum. Where's the sweet spot? Is there any emphasis that you felt was missing in all of this? Uh, yeah, I think there was it's one topic that I've mentioned it before recently to, to somebody I was talking about it and never had really thought about it this way, but the the what's different about these nature-based solutions and the nature-based sort of carbon. And a lot of it is most of the focus is on science, but there's a very real and interesting other angle. And it relates to the task force as well, where who owns these assets? Who owns nature? And for the most part, it's the global south and who lives in these places. It's the usually the most disadvantaged and uh, least represented communities out there. So there, if, if you're looking at it from a, a moral point of view, we need to find a way to make this work. We need to find a way to make nature-based solutions a big part of the solution just from a, a pure compensation sort of angle, that those that are least responsible for the problem should be the ones disproportionately benefiting from it, right? They're, they're the ones that have, at the end of the day, are have been safeguarding these lands, these areas. And instead of setting higher and higher rules and, and more technical rules that we all agree need to be there, but we need to figure out a way for putting those rules in place without disenfranchising these whole sectors of the population, right? If the only way you can do an offset is uh, by planting a tree in Germany, then I think we've done something wrong as a global community. So it's not only a math problem, it's a question of who benefits, who has the power, and if it's the same corporates and societies that created the problem, they're gonna, at the end of the day, benefit from the solution then I think we've done something wrong. So we need to find that avenue and the task force needs to find a way to make sure those sectors benefit and have a pathway basically to the market. How do we ensure that the benefits flow to the people who are providing the service? It's looking at every step in the chain and that consideration is given to these communities and societies at every step. So it's not only a benefit sharing and it's always looked at that way that these people just happen to be there and they need to, to share in, in the benefits as if they were sitting in oil and they would get a percentage of revenue. But it's really thinking that these are their projects, right? This is their land. And so when you're developing a methodology for carbon, let's say, it shouldn't just be developed by super top scientists in the U.S. or wherever. Uh, it should be locally relevant. If it's not applicable and if the local people don't understand what you're doing or how you're doing it or how it can be done, then I would argue that it's not very useful. So I think it's including them every step of the way from 
designing things, data collection, to the rules that are being you know, created. You have to make sure if local or indigenous peoples have no formal land tenure in, in a lot of places, you have to figure out a way around that, right? If you're the, the sort of methodology states, well, you must have land title and you must have that piece of paper, then you're instantly telling a huge swath of folks you have no place here. So it's that sort of consideration that it's it's not us doing it for them. It's, you know, really us doing it with them. At the end of the day, these are their projects. So we need to take that from the legal con- contractual sort of relationships to the benefit sharing sort of financial side to just these are little businesses, essentially. So we need to create entrepreneurs locally that can benefit from it and engage at local universities. It's the whole sort of mechanism. I think we need a, a big rethink there. And there's certainly some interesting initiatives happening in, in Africa and others that are stepping up saying, let's create a new class of entrepreneur, right? Ones that benefits, that makes money from preserving nature. Now, what does that look like? What's the skill set needed to, to benefit that? to fully actualize that sort of job. And I think there's huge potential because once you open up those floodgates of, of ingenuity, I would love to see a methodology, a carbon methodology come up fully created in wherever in, in, in the global south, applicable there. And that is just as high quality that the ones that, that, that we've been used to. So there's definitely space, but we have to create that space. And, and that begins by just giving a voice to, to the folks that, that obviously have these essence. Augustin Silvani of Conservation International, wrapping up this edition of Bionic Planet. I've taken the plunge. I've left my day job of 15 years to build up the show and to cover net zero for Carbon Pulse. If you think I'm doing a good job of translating these issues into plain English and putting them into context, and you want to hear more, then help me give it to you by becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash bionic planet. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash bionic planet. There you can support me for as little as $1 per episode and with a monthly cap. This way, if I don't manage to generate an episode in a month, you don't get charged. And if I manage to crank out a ton of episodes, you don't get whacked either. The address again is patreon.com forward slash bionic planet. If you are curious about Carbon Pulse and want a trial subscription, then go get one and use the registration code Bionic Planet. That way, if you become a subscriber, I get a cut and that helps the show. Finally, you can also help others find the show by giving me a five-star review on whichever podcatcher you access me through. Remember, the more stars I get, the more ears I get. And the more ears I get, the more minds I can reach. And we have to reach hundreds of millions of minds if we're to meet the climate challenge. We can do it if we all work together. And that wraps up today's show. Until next time, I'm Steve Zwick in Chicago. Thanks for listening.